0: Every so often, we put out an episode of this show that features our favorite stories, some things we really liked or think are important. Well, in this show, we are flipping that convention around and featuring stories you liked best. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. This week, the stories our listeners engaged with the most. You liked them, you yelled at them, talked about them, or maybe you wrote us to say they opened or changed your mind. But before we get to those, we are going to start with a conversation about harassment. Massive cultural changes are sweeping through American workplaces since news broke about the predatory behavior of Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. It's not an exaggeration to say we are in the middle of a reckoning. But how to puzzle through it and what comes next, those are harder questions to answer. So we brought on three thoughtful experts. Lily Loofborough, culture critic for The Week. Susan Marquis, Dean of the Pardee Rand Graduate School and the author of I Am Not a Tractor, and David Lewis, CEO of Operations, Inc. and an HR consultant. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. David, I'm actually going to start with you because you are in HR. What are HR departments thinking about right now as we look toward this new year?
1: Right now, HR organizations for some companies are trying to figure out how to get leadership behind them and be supportive of their initiatives and their recommendations. I think in other HR organizations, they're trying to ensure that they're not the ones that get mentioned in the news the next time. So they're going to leadership and emphasizing the importance of training, of best practices, and of ensuring that the culture in their organization is not one that supports hostile work environment.
0: You know, Lily, you wrote about Uh, a bunch of different things. And one thing you wrote about here was this sort of gray area of how do we figure out what punishment fits what behavior? Is there some uh, gradient of behavior that we are talking about? Or is it all rooted in the same culture or both? You know, I mean, Matt Damon isn't the first
2: to suggest that we should probably come up with some kind of hierarchy of harm. Michelle Goldberg did it at The New York Times. I've done it, too. You know, the reason we need that isn't just to safeguard the reputations of men, but it's also that we've naturalized harassment in this culture to a certain extent, and we need to denaturalize it and name behaviors that we've long turned a blind eye to since Anita Hill testified against Clarence Thomas in 1991, and women realized that A, there was a name for what they'd experienced, and B, it was possible to make it stop, reports of sexual harassment increased and kept increasing. And that's not because women are telling fake stories, it's because they don't have to put up with it anymore. And applying that lesson to the present, it seems clear to me that sexual harassment is too broad an umbrella. You know, that story about the Eskimos having 50 words for snow is apocryphal, but it's relevant here. A culture needs a language that's rich enough to precisely describe its environment. And it's clear that for ours, sexual harassment is way too broad. We need more precision.
0: When we think about precision, though, we're also thinking about sort of... I hate to use the word punishment, but it is punishment, but then also solutions. I mean, Susan, you have written this book, I Am Not a Tractor, that talks about how female farm workers sort of organized and combated harassment, but there were real measurable consequences for harassment that that were put into place. Can you kind of walk us through that and how that worked?
3: So it's not just the female farm workers who have come together. It's all the farm workers the point is that it's the workers, the migrant workers, beginning in Florida and moving up through the southeast states, has faced appalling conditions in the fields. Sexual harassment itself comes uh, into play every day. It's a very different working situation than in office, obviously. You're isolated in the fields, you're subject to crew leaders who say sexual favors are uh, the price of a job. The way they've addressed this issue is uh, uh, several different ways. One is worker education that actually allows – makes sure workers know what their rights are. Uh, It's a matter of comprehensive monitoring that includes not just audits but a 24-7 hotline and protection from retribution. And when violations are seen to occur, there's real-world market sanctions. Either the person – the crew leader who may have committed this abuse or the co-worker is fired – Uh, immediately, or uh, if the grower does not come into compliance, they lose uh, their market. That's 60% of the market for tomatoes, for example, are part of the fair food program, and those buyers are not allowed to buy from any grower that's in violation of the standards. So it's a comprehensive approach that includes education, monitoring, and real-world
0: market sanctions. Well, that real-world market sanctions aspect is something that I'm really interested in. And, and David, I'm curious if you could weigh in on this. You know, we have also heard stories of sexual harassment at Ford. The New York Times did excellent reporting there. And, And there was a penalty involved, but a really small one when you're thinking about a giant company with huge market caps. So is there a way to take this fair food program model and expand it to other industries, do you think?
1: I think it is, but I just don't know that it's very practical because you're going to get a lot of pushback. Everything comes back to how the investigation is done and how objectively the company goes through that process. With that said, you know I've been doing this 32 years, and I can tell you that if I go in on an investigation and find someone has been the source of harassment and has done so purposely, in my opinion, and, and, and for that matter also repeatedly, the, the recommendations to terminate uh, and You know, more so when you take a look at cases where the, in that case, the person who was the harasser goes to court and claims some type of wrongful discharge, they lose those cases by an overwhelming majority. The courts have no tolerance for this kind of behavior. So, you know, companies need to look at this issue not in terms of the typical fear that they have regarding cases involving discrimination and wrongful discharge and fearing that they're going to be sued in those instances and instead recognize that the best and easiest path is to fire people when They behave this way because it sends a message. And the the message you send to everybody else when you keep people around and say, don't do this again, we're going to send you for training so that you don't do this in the future, is not the message that gets cultural change.
0: But don't you need a clear policy as to what you're not tolerating? I mean, Lily has written about this sort of myth of the bumbling male, which is, oh, gee, I didn't know that that hug was – you know, not welcoming? How how do we figure out the difference between, hey, Bob, don't do that versus, Bob, you've lost your job?
1: So I think that most employers look for sort of the rule book when they, they come to us and they ask us, you know, do you, do you have a if-then statement that says, if somebody does this, then we do that. And, and that just doesn't exist out there. So first step is for companies to go ahead and decide, OK, what is their culture going to be and how are they going to, at least going forward, handle these types of issues and mitigate them when they occur Then the most important piece of that after is to be consistent. I mean there's too many times where we'll go in and we'll talk to someone where the company has terminated immediately an individual in a lower level role for the same kind of behavior that they're about to do retraining for someone who's at a senior level role. You know, Mm. The head of sales tends to get away far more with the same kind of behavior that is not tolerated by someone who's working in the mailroom. You're listening
0: to Marketplace Weekend. We are talking about sexual harassment and workplace culture with Lily Lufbrough, Susan Marquis, and David Lewis. Well, how do the two of you, Susan and Lily, who have thought about this, particularly when we are talking about power, th- that's the thing that that David is talking about here, this differential treatment for a star versus your kind of regular coworker. How do we empower people who, because of race, income, you know, or even just kind of how supported they feel in a work environment, are at the lower end of a power differential. The ways
3: to get at this power aspect is to begin with recognizing the expertise of the women themselves. That the women have experience in the field, experience in their work situation. They have an expertise in the conditions that allow this behavior to occur, Uh, David's talked about the culture, and that's critical. But there's also physical conditions. We're talking about some of these restaurants. There's late night, post-shift activities, isolated storage rooms. The workers have seen the same things in the fields. If you can bring, we can ensure women have a place at the table where the company is making its policies. You have much better probability of coming up with successful solutions. They can say, it is in these conditions that this kind of behavior tends to occur, and those conditions can be addressed.
1: I want to put a spotlight though on the fact that what um, what was just described is now happening in a lot of millennial-driven organizations as well. You're talking about in in many of the tech firms and, again, millennial-driven um, populations, there's been a trend to go ahead and to turn these work environments into more fun environments. You're finding ping-pong tables, foosball tables, pantries that actually have alcohol in them. And at 7 o'clock in the evening, the workplace looks more like the happy hour at a local bar than it does the workplace. And the one other alarming um, piece of uh, around this particular issue is that a lot of those companies are also hiring HR people that are more oriented on attracting and retaining talent not on handling these types of complex employee relations issues so now they get into situations where you have harassment claims which are being driven and fueled by the fact that there's an environment that's more like a bar than a workplace and suddenly you've got things that are potentially spinning out of control this isn't just about some of the you know blue collar or service oriented businesses This is now very much a problem in corporate America.
0: Well, wait a minute, though, because I I, I want you to to hop in here because you're looking at this from really a a 30,000 foot cultural standpoint. And and one of those things is, okay. well, what is a modern workplace? What is it there for? Do do we come close to victim blaming if we're saying, well, gosh, we were all at the Christmas party?
2: Right. I mean, I think it's instructive and significant that the initial wave of allegations actually came from the entertainment industry (laughs) where those distinctions actually are invisible. There's not necessarily an HR department in a lot of scenarios that would be able to respond to some of the concerns that came up. Um, that said, I think we can learn a lot about what that kind of environment does and how it can change. And you know, I, th- I think that one reason that we are seeing the beginning of the backlash that I've long been expecting to the Me Too moment, so to speak, is, is because we are seeing consequences being delivered piecemeal through what seems to amount to an inverse popularity contest in the entertainment industry. I do think, look, the public was needed to get this ball rolling. And now it's up to us to figure out what a good system should be. And I, I think we need a precise lexicon like, kind of unacceptable conduct. This is going to be slow, and it's going to be hard. And it's important that we be thoughtful and proceed with care.
0: Lily Loofborough is culture critic for The Week. Susan Marquis is the Dean of the Pardee-Rand Graduate School and David Lewis, CEO of Operations, Inc. and an HR consultant. Thank you all so much for talking with me. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. December 31st is coming up fast, and you know what that means. Time is running out to make your tax-deductible donation to support Marketplace. Your gift not only supports independent reporting and journalism that you can trust, it helps us do more of it and reach more people, too. For as little as $5 a month, you can become a Marketplace investor today. the payoff, you're helping us fulfill our mission of raising economic intelligence across the country and making us all smarter. You can donate online at Marketplace.org, and thank you. For the rest of the show, we're looking back on the stories that listeners were most interested in, the pieces most shared on social media and read at Marketplace.org. Back in October, we spent time digging into Social Security and the future of retirement benefits in this country. That is not all the Social Security Administration provides, of course. It also handles disability payments for people in need. But there are massive backlogs and wait times when it comes to approval for disability benefits for people like Joyce Oteng. She filed for disability benefits in 2014 because of severe osteoarthritis, bipolar disorder, PTSD, and depression.
4: I thought they were going to look at it and give it to me right away, maybe in months or so, but I waited so long.
0: Oteng was initially denied benefits, like about two-thirds of disability applicants, so she appealed. The first hearing into her case took place two years later. During that time, she couldn't work. Finances were tight.
5: It
4: it was difficult.
0: But after a year of hearings, Oteng was awarded monthly benefits of just over $1,000.
4: It helps. It helps, but it's not enough.
0: That's about the average payment for disability recipients. But for some, benefits come too late. Last year, according to the Social Security Administration's own Inspector General, more than 7,000 people died while waiting for their disability cases to be heard. Miriam Hurwitz is an attorney at New York Legal Assistance. She works with low-income New Yorkers seeking disability benefits, and she's had clients die waiting.
6: I think the system is clogged. I think that there are many more applications now than there used to be, as well as more denials Um, And so for each denial, then you need to have a hearing, assuming the person appeals.
0: The Social Security Administration declined to be interviewed for this story. But we asked the administration's former commissioner, Michael Astro, what he thought of the backlog. He was commissioner from 2007 until 2013. According to Astro, the problem isn't due to the initial application process. He says about 6% of applicants should pretty clearly just be allowed to get benefits.
7: Those cases are usually decided within about 10 days, 14 days, sometimes within 24 hours.
0: The vast majority of applicants hear about their status in 100 days, give or take. So then where's the backlog happening?
7: The problem is on the back end, where if you're not happy with the first two levels of decision, then you have your right to appeal. And that's where the backlogs are. That's where you're having 1,000-day waits. And the system has regressed more quickly than it was fixed and that's really it's a terribly sad situation.
0: We talk about the backlog, but I also want to talk about the the, the benefits in general. We've heard from a bunch of different listeners, benefits vary a little bit, but they're about $1,000 a month when we're talking about SSDI. Um is that enough?
7: You know, that's a judgmental question. Right now, it's not a conversation. We can really afford to have because the system as a whole is insolvent. Right now, if you're a young working adult, you're looking at a system that, uh, you know, 15, 20 years from now, unless there's some significant change, it's going to start paying you substantially less in terms of benefits than what people go right now. It would go down to somewhere between 75 and 80 percent of what people are going Uh, what people are getting now. So the question really isn't, I think, the question on the table for the Congress for the immediate future is not whether it should be more. It's, can't you get your act together to pass legislation to make sure that the benefit levels at least stay about the same to where they are now?
0: Well, this seems to be the sort of dual problem issue in talking about Social Security overall, not just on the disability front or on the old age front. You have recipients who say, this money is not helping me survive. On the other hand, if you look at the basic math of the agency, uh, we are creeping up pretty quickly on insolvency. A- and so how how do we tackle this massive thing?
7: Yes, but let's let's talk about what insolvency means. Because, right, you know, it's not as scary
0: are, as it sounds. I feel like right, that, people, that can really freak people out.
7: It's an actuarial term of art. And you know, in, in regular life, if you and I were to be insolvent, that's really bad. That means there's no money left. That's not what it means for social security. What it means is that the trust fund over a 75 year period is not um, able to pull out to pay the full benefits that it is paying at the moment. And so right now, it, it varies a little bit with the economy from year to year. but right now the trustees are saying, that in the twenty some point in the 2030s, um benefits, unless something changes, will be reduced to about seventy seven percent of where they are now, and that's bad. Now, yeah. but seventy seven percent is not nothing. That's it's still, not nothing, right? It's not nothing. If you get disabled, it still would make a huge difference. You would still qualify, depending on whether it was. Uh, SSDI or or, or SS well, well for SSDI you'd still qualify for Medicare. And and in many cases, for disabled people, the qualifying for Medicare is much more important than the cash benefit.
0: Okay, so you and I can have this conversation about Congress needing to do things and fraud in the system. But if you are listening to this and you receive or are counting on receiving either old age benefits or disability insurance, it's got to sound kind of academic and frustrating. Like that doesn't really help you pay your bills or, or get through the week. I mean, how, how should, how should a recipient receive all of these kind of academic conversations?
7: Well, I think if you're a recipient um, right now, it's it's difficult. I mean, you know, the conversations are going to happen. I think the important thing is not to panic. The fact that Congress um, seems dedicated to inaction, I suppose, is a consolation in some sense. The people that really need to be concerned are younger Americans, and right now, it, the system really is an intergenerational transfer from younger Americans to middle-aged and older Americans, and. Um, I think a lot of them are frustrated by that. They think that there'll be nothing there for them, and and I don't think that's right. But the question is, are we really uh, living up to the social compact of Social Security? And I can't say that we are. Let
0: me ask you a 30,000-foot question. What is the goal of Social Security, either the old-age benefit or disability insurance? Is it to cushion expenses, you know, help out a bit? Or is it to live on?
7: No, it's not to live on. It's never been set up as a system to live on. It's been to to supply baseline support for people, originally just people who were old, um, and then later people who had a severe disability. Um, But particularly with regard to retirement, it has always been meant as a supplement to private savings and pensions, and so when we I mean, talk on the about the disability
0: side, though, you know, if it's if if you can't work, that's that's tough.
7: Yeah, that's bad, um, and that's why Congress expanded the program um, to uh, the insurance program in the 1950s, and as a, uh, the welfare component in the 1970s. It's a recognition that in a compassionate society, um, you don't. Um, relegate um, people at the bottom end of the spectrum economically to a life of, of severe suffering. You try to ameliorate that as best you can. But make no mistake about it, if you've got no other income and you're disabled or uh, retired, um, that's a very That's a very small amount of money to live on, particularly in certain parts of the country. I mean, if you're in an urban area, it's particularly – most urban areas, particularly on the East Coast and the West Coast, very difficult to live on that.
0: That was Michael Astrew, former commissioner of the Social Security Administration from 2007 to 2013. Now to more of the stories you engaged with the most online. Back in June, we turned our attention to energy, where it comes from and how we get it. Americans love political narratives about work and jobs that evoke or signal something. And over the last year, it was hard to escape the narrative of the coal miner. My administration
5: is putting an end to the war on coal.
0: And I love the miners, and we're going to
5: put the miners back to work, okay?
7: This will help turn this industry around. And I'm see okay. The labor department says we have 51,000 coal mining jobs in the country total. He
5: would take care of the coal miners. He took care of the coal companies, okay, but he hasn't done nothing for the miners yet. We
0: love our coal miners. President Trump talked about miners a lot in 2017, and he's rolled back Obama-era regulations aimed at the mining industry. But here's the thing. Setting narratives aside, the numbers show coal is declining. Natural gas is cheaper to use to make electricity, and many of the people who have done this work don't see much of a future for themselves in coal.
8: My name is Gary Bentley. I'm a former underground miner from Wattsburg, Kentucky. I currently reside in Lexington, Kentucky. So I worked as an underground miner for 12 years. I started straight out of high school and uh, started in the beginning as a contract miner. And then by the end of my career, I was working as a mine foreman doing safety inspections. Generally speaking, uh, the average mine height was about 36 inches. Uh, so being six foot two, it was uh, met crawling a lot uh, for most of my workday. Why did you get into mining? My original plans were not to work underground. It was to go to college. Uh, I actually wanted to work in education. But then, of course, being 18, 19 years old and earning $70,000 a year, I kind of got suckered into the industry and ended up staying. There's often a stereotype, and uh, very unfortunate that our president has said this a few times, that... Coal miners are ignorant people. They don't know how to do anything else. But I've worked with guys that uh, had degrees from uh, good universities uh, as computer programmers. Uh, I I worked with a guy that was a college professor for two years and decided that he could make a better living for himself and be closer to his family by working underground. And it's not always about either not being able to do something else or not knowing how to. It's about being close to family, and when that's the only option you have, that's what you do. And it's also about the uh, history of it. I mean, a lot of there's kind of a romance behind coal mining.
0: Do you think politicians romanticize mining?
8: They do. Um, and for example, you know, in 2008 which would have been one of the biggest booms of my mining career as far as the industry itself. Uh, Coal only made up 4% of Kentucky's economy. And if you look at the way politics are played around the industry, you would think that it was the majority of the state's economy. And so I do think politicians, you know, either romanticize or blow things out of proportion... You know, for their own means, because an industry that's only four percent of a state's economy shouldn't play as large of a role in the state's politics.
0: Where do you think that leaves us now?
8: I don't see a long future in coal. You know there have been a few mines that have opened up recently in my hometown, regardless, I don't see those being long term jobs um and as unfortunate as it is. The people in those communities understand that. The decline of the coal industry is all based on market changes. You've got to look at the price of natural gas, which I think was one of the biggest uh, heavy hitters in the change of the industry, but also the decline of the steel industry. The fact that solar, wind, and hydro is now a more affordable option for energy compared to coal. And then also the export market is beginning to disappear because you have countries such as China and Australia opening up new coal mines. So we're also losing the ability to export the coal. It's all about, you know, profit margin and how to make an extra dollar.
0: That was coal miner Gary Bentley speaking to us in June. In July, the minimum wage in some parts of the country went up. Maryland, Oregon, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C. But the minimum wage scale is complicated. At the federal level, it's $7.25 an hour. Then some states have their own minimums, and on top of that, some cities have theirs. We heard from two low-wage workers in different parts of the country and on different ends of the minimum wage scale, starting in a state with no minimum wage law.
4: My name is Tanya Harrell. I'm 21 years old, and I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. I currently work at the McDonald's. I make $8 an hour. Me and my boyfriend are raising a three-year-old. He makes four on July 5th. I'm mostly supporting our child. I will work myself more than I am supposed to be worked. And I stress a little bit more when I can't, you know, help myself a little bit more and I'm always helping others. I have a grandmother that I have to take care of and I and when she can't get her medicine I help her. And then I can't even afford to take care of my two little sisters that's in foster care. And like that's like the main reason of why I work so hard. With the eight dollars an hour, it's yeah, I need like eight dollars an hour is so not enough even though I went from Seven twenty-five, seven fifty, all the way up to eight dollars. It's still not enough. It's just like my paycheck still be like four, four hundred something, and that's still not enough for rent because like now a one bedroom is like six hundred dollars. Working fast food come with a lot of stress and a lot of wrong attentions to some people, and it's not enough how we work so like people like me work so hard just to. Make ends meet. I'm not going to say I like it. At the moment, it's not the best that I can do. But at the moment, it's just that I have to not settle for it, but I have to, there were certain things, and then I also have to do better than what I'm doing. The first thing I'm going to do is going back to school. When I finish that, it's like I could defeat any task that comes my way.
0: The story in Los Angeles is very different from New Orleans. The minimum wage went to twelve dollars an hour in July, right after we talked with this guest. My name is Audet Solis. I am twenty-one years old, and I go to Fullerton
6: Community College. I currently live in uh, Whittier, California. I am a hostess at uh, IHOP of the International House of Pancakes. I currently make ten fifty an hour. My mother is currently not working. So I help her with um, any necessities that either my mom needs or either that my brother and my sister need. So it's like baby formula, baby food, uh, clothes. This would be the only semester that I skip out on um, going to school because I don't have enough money. My money I spend on paying my car insurance, gas, my phone bill, basic uh, grocery stuff like milk, cereal, i managed to make ends meet i honestly don't know how what it's like to work on a minimum wage is constantly it's constantly receiving harassment from customers who are belittling you who don't think that you can comprehend something simple a lot of the times management doesn't take time to actually make you feel safe it's hard it gets hard and it's super frustrating because I have all these bills to pay. I have, you know, my, my two uh, siblings to take care of. I love my job. I love talking to people and to customers. And it's also hard at the same time. But even just like the little,
0: you know, $1. fifty raise, it does make a difference. That was Ajadet Solis speaking on Marketplace Weekend back in July. week we take a look at the news by the numbers. And so this week, a roundup. Some favorites from 2017.
9: I'm Sarah Menendez. And I'm Paulina Velasco. And our first number is 1,750. That's how many dollars competitive eater Matt Stoney made eating marshmallow peeps at the World Peeps Eating Championship in National Harbor, Maryland, setting a world record. According to Consumer Reports, three and a half peeps make up a hundred calorie servings. Stony ate two hundred and fifty-five peeps in just five minutes, which, if you do the math, is about seven thousand two hundred and eighty-five calories. Ew, disgusting. Yum. Eight hundred sixty-seven thousand dollars. That is. That's how much cash travelers left behind at airport security checkpoints in 2016 travelers at New York's JFK Airport were the most careless with their loose change. About $70,000 never made it to their final destinations. Here's the kicker. The TSA gets to keep the money, but no word yet on what they plan to do with your half-empty water bottles. Half a billion hours. That's how long people have spent watching Adam Sandler movies on Netflix, according to data from the streaming service. Netflix bought the exclusive rights to four Adam Sandler movies in 2014, and re-upped for another four films in March. Sandler has long been a box office champion, but his latest movies have been a little meh with critics. And his 2015 Netflix venture, The Ridiculous Six, scored 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. To be fair, it's kind of hard to top-click. <laughs> <laughs> Three hundred. That's how many dollars you'll shell out for a copy of Beyoncé's Coffee Table book. The 600-page volume includes two vinyl LPs, photos, writing and lyrics from Beyoncé, and poetry from British author Warsons Shire. It's called How to Make Lemonade. Maybe her next one will be How to Make Several Million Dollars. I wish I got that for the holidays.
0: One thing I know to be true is that our listeners almost always love stories about food and about how our eating choices can tell us a lot about America. And this story from October is no exception because maybe you just spent some time at a place like this.
7: Here's the story of every burger ever made at TGI Fridays.
0: Thursday Buffalo Farm Wild Street. Wings.
6: Wings, beer, sports. We're America's favorite favorite
10: apples.
0: But the numbers behind chains like Applebee's, Buffalo Wild Wings, TGI Fridays tell us you're going less than you used to. Casual dining chains are now the worst performing segment of the entire restaurant industry. And the number of people eating at them has fallen every single month for the past two years. That's according to data from Miller Pulse. So, what's happening? Using Lancaster, Pennsylvania as a lens for this story, writer Elizabeth Dunn investigated the decline of the suburban sit-down chain and what it says about the middle class for the website Eater. So I
11: grew up going to TGI Fridays in high school, and I remember at the time it being the kind of place that basically everybody I knew went to, and those places, TGI Fridays, Applebee's, what we call casual dining restaurants – have started to close. They've started to go bankrupt. Traffic has been down across
0: the country. And I just wanted to figure out why. There is a moment in your story in which you say, well, it could be millennials want things catered to them and artisanal this and that. And yet the data maybe told you a different story.
11: The decline of these restaurants seemed to coincide with polarizing incomes in the United States. So the higher wage earners in America earning more and more, and the middle class getting smaller, and a lot of America feeling more and more squeezed.
0: So if people are moving down the socioeconomic ladder, and some people are moving up it, I guess, what, this hollowing out just has taken away the customer base? Sure. So the most
11: visible way in which TGI Fridays and places like it are challenged is maybe these independent bistros that people are going to when they can afford a more expensive meal. But what's not necessarily as visible is the people who aren't doing as well and who aren't going to TGI Fridays because a $14 meal is, is really kind of a lot. Yeah.
0: And when you went to Lancaster, what did you observe
11: So first of all, I was looking for some place that reflected small town or what you might call average America. And Lancaster fit a lot of those criteria. I saw that TGI Fridays is located in a large mall. You know, Fridays was not very busy. There were a few couples in there each time that I went, you know, a couple families maybe eating after shopping. But downtown Lancaster was booming. And so having people re-enter the city in that way really gives an advantage to smaller um, independent restaurants in a downtown.
0: There's another wrinkle here, the rise of technology. The idea that if you want, you know, dinner and a movie, you can actually do that at home. How do you think that has played into this? Yeah, so I was really curious
11: to see that traffic
0: at casual
7: dining
11: restaurants turned negative over the long term about a decade ago. And what else happened about a decade ago? Well, in 2007, the iPhone was invented, and Netflix also launched its streaming service. Cast your memory back to a time 15 years ago when, if you were looking for options for how to spend your time, going to a TGI Fridays and shooting the breeze was something that really might be of value to you. And now people are spending a whole lot more time just wanting to retreat into their homes, watch the latest Netflix binge and just kind of text go on Facebook. And so that has certainly challenged restaurants, which have the proposition of, you know, coming in and eating in-house.
0: There are some exceptions to this rule. Olive Garden is the, the really notable one. What is it and what are other restaurants like it
11: doing right yes in olive garden one of the things that they've done really well is really invest in their food quality mm. so that when people do you know go out to a meal like this that they know that they're going to have a guaranteed good experience the food is going to be good there's also texas roadhouse is doing really well and they're credited with providing an experience that's more than just about the food there's country music the servers line dance and so that's sort of an experiential meal for people
0: Applebee's has put some money into trying to sort of change some of their menu, change their experience. Are are they in this category too? Applebee's is doing
11: probably even worse than TGI Fridays. They're really really struggling and and one of the reasons is because their menu is just less focused than some of the other options. They also play to a lower price point. They're one of the cheapest casual dining restaurants, and so I think their target consumer is among the most squeezed.
0: If you try and look forward
11: where do these restaurant chains go? What I imagine will happen is that some of these chains will survive, and they'll do that by, by really focusing on value, not in terms of cheap menu prices, but by making sure that people have a good experience when they come in. The food quality is good. Um, they're feeling like they're leaving the, the restaurant having had a guaranteed experience.
0: Elizabeth Dunn covers the business of food and drinks. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. As the industry declines, chain franchise owners are scrambling. Ruby Tuesday was sold to a private equity firm. Buffalo Wild Wings plans to close 60 restaurants. Applebee's will shut 135 locations this year. Our producer, Peter Ballinon rosen headed to the Applebee's closest to our New York studio and joined the franchise owner in a little soul-searching.
8: Can you get another cider of onion ring, please? Thank you.
5: My name is Zane Tankle, I'm the CEO of Apple Metro Inc, which owns and operates about 40 restaurants in and around the New York metropolitan area. They're all Applebee's, yes. We're now in the kitchen, an order is taken out in the restaurant and it comes up on a screen here. If it goes red, it says we're over 14 minutes. We have a metric that we wanna have the food back on the table. 14 minutes from when it's ordered.
10: Eight has on your, range, your 12 has three range.
5: What exacerbated the Applebee's demise was that it made a wrong decision to try and capture the millennial. Then they abandoned the traditional Applebee's customer. The marketing proposition was hand-cut wood fire grill. We looked like anything but what we really were.
8: Sharp, how are you, sir? How's it going?
5: 60 days after we started that program, uh, you just saw the, the, the guest counts dwindling. They were, it was dramatic. It was sinking like a rock. Uh, our sales started tanking early on 2% a month, 3% a month. In the second year, they started to deteriorate 7%, 8%, 12% a month. And it just continued to deteriorate no matter what we did. I have an email trail of my letters to management about how it was wrong, what was wrong. You can see in my email started very politically correct and at the end I was actually cursing in writing using words that you wouldn't dare ever put in writing because it was just nuts. So what we are doing is we're going back to what sold the best, shifting from a survival mode to the back to basics mode. What do we do that's special? Eye contact.
9: Big smile. You two for dinner or
5: just drink? Big greeting when you walk in the door. Big goodbye when you go out the door. All the little things that make it an experience. It's all about
0: the experience.
2: Bye-bye, guys. Thank you for coming.
0: That was Applebee's franchise owner, Zane Tankle. Before we close out the year, we're going to rewind to a musical marketplace quiz. That's where we speak with actors, authors, and other creative types about their financial lives. Chris Thiele is the host of Live From Here. He spoke with producer Haley Hirschman back in January. Fill in the blank.
12: Money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you.
10: I'm going to go with it can buy you Barolo.
12: What is that? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
10: <laughs> that is my favorite kind of wine. It's made from um, the grape Nebbiolo and comes from the Piedmont region uh, of Italy up there, sort of in the northwest. That's, uh, so I'm going from life experience here. That, that <laughs> yes, it can't It can't buy you happiness, but it definitely can buy you Barolo, which is happiness of a certain sort.
12: In a next life, what would your
10: career be? I guess I would love to try writing. I would love to try writing or playing tennis. Hmm. Do you play tennis now? No, I can't. On account of the mandolin, I tried. I love tennis so much. And one of my favorite things to do is practice mandolin while watching Roger Federer play tennis. (laughs) Um, It's fun, you know, just watching him do what he does. There's so many lessons there for, for anyone who's attempting to do something well. The ability to shake off a mistake, you know, the concept of being able to lose a battle and not the war. That sort of thing. And just the importance of just being being oneself in the midst Mm -hmm. of of an important activity and letting letting your letting your body and your mind and your heart do the things that they know how to do.
12: What is the hardest part about your job that no one
10: knows? One thing that's really hard is turning it off, turning thinking about it off in an effort to be 100 percent present with the people that you love at the Mm. end of the day you know so for instance my my wife and my little boy it's not that i don't have the energy for them at the end of the day it's whether it's whether i can turn my thoughts about you know these various things that i'm attempting to to do it's whether i can turn those thoughts off and just and be there be a husband and be a father which are crucially important <laughs> To yeah. happiness. Um, and, you know, to not miss these beautiful moments with my with my little boy as he's learning how to be a person, and to not miss the communion, the fellowship with my wife as those things are happening, or just those, those moments that we can share together as he's accomplished, as little Calvin's maybe accomplishing this or that thing.
12: When did you realize music could be an actual career?
10: Oh, I know I was two years old when I told my parents I wanted to to be a mandolin player. Really? Um, yeah. I think I was dimly aware that, this, that that was a way that you could just be in the world, that that was something that you could be and that that would be enough. At
12: two years old, how did you know what a mandolin was?
10: We were going to this pizza place every Saturday night at that point where there was a bluegrass band and the leader of the band played the mandolin. He was a very charismatic fellow and also a very good player. And I just wanted—I wanted to do what he did.
12: Do you remember the first time you were paid to perform?
10: Yeah, I was seven, I think. And I'm pretty sure that it was for an old folks' home. I remember playing for them, and you know, I was such a ham. I was seven years old. I'm a ham now. <laughs> I was an even bigger ham then. Um, and, you know, I can remember just, just eating all that attention up, you know, and it come up to me afterwards, and... and um, and talk about the performance and maybe pinch my cheek and <laughs> I, you know, loving every minute of it you know, but practically presenting the cheek for pinching uh, I think I've always kind of eaten it up and then you know, to get I think a check for 50 bucks or something I, I think I w- wanted to spend it on baseball cards but was not allowed to mm. um, there was never really like a, a light switching on saying I could do this for a living it was that what I already was doing it for a living basically <laughs>
12: What is something everyone should own no matter the cost?
10: A coffee machine. A good coffee machine. You should mm. you should have a good coffee machine and you should acquire a taste for coffee. I think that you should know your soul. You should know your own coffee soul. <laughs> you should know what what sort of coffee you like and you should have a device with which to make it well every morning. I believe so ardently in the importance of a routine that propels one into the tasks of the day. Yeah, I understand that caffeine is a drug and that dependency is, you know, a dangerous state to be in. And I certainly, I guess, am coffee dependent. Um,
12: <laughs> do you go from coffee to wine or do you have, is there a midday no, drink a in the zone. middle? No,
10: yeah, there's a there's a dead zone. Um, sadly, it would, it would be great. And then there are certainly days when the coffee goes right up into the wine, uh, or the, you know, the, the coffee goes up into a, a cocktail goes into some wine. I sound I really sound I sound like someone with a major problem. Huh? And, and, and perhaps I do. I don't think I don't think I do. Actually, everything in moderation, including moderation itself.
12: What advice do you wish someone had given you before you started your career?
10: You can squeeze the life out of something Hmm. through perfectionism. That you can reach a point of diminishing returns. I think just uh, being able to pull back from something and realize that it is done, it's good. It's good, and working on it more is not going to make it better. In fact, it could make it worse. And instead, turn that focus and that care and that instinct to work hard on, on to the next thing. I wish I had gotten that piece of advice a little earlier.
0: That was Chris Thiele, host of Live From Here. And if there's someone you'd like to hear take the Marketplace quiz, just let us know. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org. Coming up on Marketplace Weekend in the new year, a look at the industry of wellness. Gym memberships, vitamins, weight loss programs, self-care. Do you hear one of your New Year's resolutions in there? Get in touch with us and share what you're resolving to stick to and how much you're willing to shell out to do it. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org. And you can leave us a message on our voicemail, 1-800-648-5114. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. This show is produced by Peter Balanon-Rosen and Eliza Mills with help from Paulina Velasco. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. Drew Jostad is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening and have a happy new year. This is APM